We'll be in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We're going to look at chapter 1, specifically verses 15 down through verse 23. Before we get to those verses, I want you to look with me at the prayer that Paul prays for this church. It's very akin to the one that we've studied and will again in time study out of the book of Ephesians. One of the great things about studying Paul's epistles, one of the many great things, is we understand what was on his heart, what the Spirit inspired him, his great desire and yearning for the people of God. So as I read to you verses 3 through 8, excuse me, verses 3 down through about verse 14 or so, there are several things there that Paul requests for the church. This is his prayer for the church, the things that he desired that the Lord would do among them. And before we read them, let's just be clear that these are real desires for real Christians. These are things that are to be understood in the realm of sanctification. Paul is not praying that they would have these things so that they would be saved. He's praying that since they are saved, these things would be theirs in abundance. These things represent the Lord's desire for every Christian. These are not just for the more mature Christians. These are not just for the Christians who are really serious about their faith. These are for each and every one who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So after he begins with his familiar greeting in the first few verses where he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, where he states who is with him, in this case, Timothy, he addresses his audience to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, and then he expresses his desire that grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ would be theirs. Then we get in to verses 3 through 8, where basically Paul is thanking the Lord for their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, the hope which is laid up for them in heaven. And down in verse 9 is where the prayer proper begins, where he begins to list things, and you can, things, and you can count them out as we read through verse 9. He says, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This first thing that he asks, if the Lord would only grant us this first thing, how much better off would we be? How much further along the road to full knowledge of Christ and salvation and hope and glory? Read it again with me. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But then in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Then in verse 11, that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. And then in verse 12, Paul begins again to give thanks for what he has observed and seen. Through those that have come with good report. Paul had never really been in Colossae himself. But there had been those that had come to him reporting 
of what they had found, the faith that they had found there in these believers. And so in verse 12, he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Verses 12 and 13 really comprise for us a systematic theology of sorts, compressing a lot of biblical revelation concerning salvation down into just two verses. You'll notice here in these two verses the antithesis of light and darkness. In verse 12... The Father is to be thanked who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. If you find yourself seated in the light of Christ, then you can know for certain that God has been active on your part. We know that because of verse 13. Notice the activity of God in verse 13. It's it's. Summed up in three words. Have to go back to verse 12 for one of them. Qualified. Verse 13 contains delivered and conveyed. Or translated if you read the King James Bible. Verse 13 says he has delivered us from the power of darkness. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to see verse 13 and all the glory that is there. Everything that it represents in your salvation. God, your father, in grace and mercy has delivered you from the power of darkness. He has rescued you from the power of darkness, but that's not all. He didn't just remove you from the power of darkness and hold you into some unknown place, but he picked you up out of darkness and sat you down in the light. He has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This word is used obviously in a different form, in a different language in the Old Testament as when kings would come and take the people of Israel away captive. They were conveying them. They were translating them from one kingdom back into their own kingdom. And that's the operative grace and mercy of God displayed in this verse. He has conveyed from darkness to light. But this is done very specifically in verse 14. It is through the shedding of Jesus' blood that we receive this forgiveness of sins. So in verses 13, or excuse me, 12, 13, and 14, we have the theology of salvation compressed into just a few verses. Salvation can be defined as being taken from darkness to light by the power, grace, and mercy of a loving God. Do you see how all glory then is ascribed to him in this work? You and I did not have the power to convey ourselves, but he had all power And lovingly performed this work for us. If we go further back and look at Paul's request in verses 9 through 11. We need to see that all of these things that he prayed. and we, We saw them. We could list them out. All of these flow from Christ. To his redeemed. These are things that only believers can pray for themselves. And only believers can pray for other believers. These things only come as gifts of Christ to his own. 
I like what one commentator says. We cannot get Christ's gifts without Christ himself. We can't desire the things that he alone gives if we don't first desire him. You may remember from our previous study of the book of Colossians, which has been several years ago now, 2019, that Paul was writing this letter, which very much is a condensed form or version of Ephesians. You can trace out almost outline form the things that he addresses with the Ephesians or the things that he addresses with the Colossians. Only in Ephesians, they are much more much more detail, much more descriptive. Things that he says in a sentence in Colossians, he may use, he may have a paragraph concerning the same thing in Ephesians. You may remember that he was writing to refute error. That's what many of his epistles were, the writing to refute some kind of heresy or doctrinal error that had made its way into the church through false teachers. Some people refer to this as the Colossian heresy. Basically, Paul was writing to refute a mixed bag of ideas concerning the Jewish law, paganism, mysticism, and how each related or each had a part in salvation. The Colossians were the poster children for those who held a synergistic worldview, and especially as it revolved as it revolved around salvation. As you read what Paul writes to them, it's almost as if you can pick out certain aspects of the error that they were being taught because Paul so strongly and he so soundly refutes it. And it reminds us that heresy can come in two forms. Number one, it can come through subtraction from the truth, not preaching enough about the gospel of Christ biblically, but it can also come through addition. Extra biblical things. Making it not Christ alone, which we just saying in Christ alone, our hope being found, but in Christ and many other things along with him. That's a devaluing of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I like what another commentator says here. He says what Paul was writing to refute in Colossae was a doctrine of God and salvation which cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. It was all a dusty cloud that we can picture in our mind that was trying to obscure the rightful place of Jesus Christ as the only redeemer of his people. Trusting in him alone is what Paul is calling the Colossian church back to. F.F. Bruce is a name that you might recognize. He has written extensively on not just Paul's epistles, but Paul's life, his missionary journeys. He said, Paul is writing this epistle to disinfect the Colossians' understanding of Jesus Christ. They had been infected by unbiblical ideas. They had been infected by giving credence to other things outside of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And as you read this Colossian letter, it's like Paul is taking theological Clorox and he's spraying it over all of their understanding. And he is disinfecting it to the point that by the time he's done, Jesus Christ again and alone is to be seen in all of his glory as the Savior 
and the alone Savior. But really, all of that is introduction for what I really want to direct your attention to this morning. And it's found in verses 15 through 23. Verses 15 through 20 comprise one of the most highly Christological passages in all of Scripture. What I mean by that, this is one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus and his work anywhere in the Bible. This is one of the most lofty expressions about who Jesus Christ is, how his father esteemed him, how we as believers should esteem and believe in him, things about him. It's on par with what Paul would write to the Philippian church in the second chapter concerning Christ's humility and then his ensuing exaltation. So follow along as I read verse 15. And and remember, this is part of the way. This is the beginning of the way that Paul would remove and refute error. This is the way that he begins to disinfect their understanding of who Jesus is. He gives him glory in two realms or in two spheres. First in creation, the second in redemption. You'll notice as we read that these two things are very distinct. And basically Paul is saying Christ is the Lord of creation. Christ is the Lord of redemption. Therefore, he is Lord over all. So let's read it in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And we'll stop short there for just a moment. Paul is saying in those few verses that Jesus Christ alone is the creator and Lord of creation. But he goes on in verse 18. Now he is going to describe and show how Jesus Christ is not only Lord of creation. He is Lord of the new creation. The new creation of God being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So in declaring Christ to be the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, You see how Paul is basically declaring to this Colossian church the glories of their Savior that have been cast over and called into question and clouded over by giving credence to some other, someone other than Christ in either of these spheres, whether it is creation or whether it is redemption. We can can bring these two principles of biblical Truth out of these verses. Number one, there would be no creation without Jesus Christ. Second point, there would be no new creation without the incarnate Christ. No creation physical without the eternal Son of God. We see that, don't we, in John's Gospel, how that begins? 
Certainly we see it in places like Proverbs chapter 8 where Jesus Christ is to be seen as the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God operative in creation. But let me remind you what John says in his Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the Lord of glory of creation. As Christians, it is great error to countenance any proposed theory of creation that does not install Jesus Christ as the absolute Lord and sovereign over his creation. Do you see how that devalues him? Now, most of us would be very quick to say, absolutely, Jesus Christ is Lord over his new creation. But we need to be just as quick, just as dogmatic, just as biblical to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. There is no other explanation than the Son of God eternal speaking things into existence. There is no other explanation for how things came to be than God creating all things out of nothing by the word of His power, the word of His power being Jesus Christ, the word of God. And so if we give any countenance at all to any other proposed theory of creation, what we are doing is not showing our intellectual prowess, we're showing how our view of the Lord Jesus Christ is far too low. This is where his glory begins. Notice this is where Paul begins as he disinfects the minds of the Colossians. You must affirm that Jesus Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. And then it's secondly that he goes on to say that you must affirm that Jesus, Jesus Christ alone is the creator of his new creation. I like what one person has said. The creator of the world is also the head of the church, yet there is a crucial distinction to be made. While the eternal Son is the Lord of all creation by divine right, he obtained the lordship of the church only through the redemptive travail of the cross and the triumph of his resurrection. What he's saying there is Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation based upon his merits as being the second person of the Godhead in power, in might, in glory. It was his divine right. But as being the Lord of his new creation, he accomplished this only through the travail of the cross and shedding his blood, being entombed to signify that he was indeed dead and then being raised from the dead by the power of God, even being operative in his own resurrection. There's a distinction to be made there. So let's look more closely at what Paul says about Jesus in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the icon, if you will, of the invisible God. What we read in the pages of Scripture, especially the Gospels, and as Steve reminded us, in the Psalms, uh, 
and in the prophets. What we read as we see Jesus Christ, he is making the invisible God known. All of the attributes of Jesus, his mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his indignation, his wrath, his fashioning a whip of cords. All of these things bound up into the one person of the God man. He is making the invisible God known. Jesus Christ alone is the image of the invisible God. He goes on to say that he is the firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn there has given rise to to much heresy within the church throughout the ages because people would go there and say, see, Jesus Christ is a created being. But the word here speaks far more to his superiority of rank than it does to any temporal priority. This isn't speaking to Jesus Christ's being born as if he never existed. This is speaking to his superior rank because he has eternally existed. He is the firstborn over what? All of creation. There is, R.C. Sproul used to say, there is not one rogue molecule in all the universe. If there were, Jesus Christ would not be Lord of all creation. Point well taken. There is nothing that is outside the superintending of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the firstborn over all creation. And by him, all things were created in verse 16. All things, whether on earth, in heaven, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be earthly thrones or kingdoms, principalities or powers, all things were created through him. And notice the last of this verse 16, all things were created for him. We cannot get around the preeminence of Jesus Christ in creation and in his new creation when we read this paragraph. He is indeed Lord of all. All things being created through and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Children, listen to me. You know why you need not be fearful? When you hear some highly educated person in the affairs of the world talk to you about global warming or global cooling, it depends on which decade we're in as to what they talk about, right? Do you know why those kinds of things need not cause you to fear? Because Jesus Christ is holding all things together. Jesus Christ is holding all things together. I remember as a kid... I don't remember exactly what age, but a young kid, I, I remember hearing about this star wormwood that was going to make impact with the earth. And we were all going to be obliterated into dust. And how frightened I used to be when I would go to bed at night wondering if tonight is the night that wormwood is going to hit. Those kind of fears should not rise to the surface in the Christian's mind. Because Jesus Christ... Is holding everything together. Nature is not going to dissolve itself. 
but at the appropriate time, according to the wisdom of God, then, upon the word of Jesus Christ, then things will come to their end, but not before. Certainly not before. So verses 15 through 17, Paul is reminding the Colossian church, this Christ that you have put your faith and trust in. Notice how he describes them back in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. This Christ that you have put your faith and trust in is the Lord of creation. But secondly, he is the Lord of his church. What he made in the physical universe through the word of his power, he is making through his shed blood and resurrection in his new creation. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. He is the head. He is the Lord. We're going to see down by the end of verse 18 that because of these things, he is to have preeminence. Any brand of theology that does not recognize these two truths of Jesus Christ being the Lord of creation and the Lord of his church is to be avoided. It is to be cast off and seen as the heresy for which it truly is. As that which casts a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. Anything that devalues him. Anything that casts him aside and tries to install something else in his place. Is to be avoided at all costs. As he is in his first creation. He became first in his new creation. The church. This is who Jesus Christ is. Lord over all, with no rival. Do you believe that? That there is no rival to the authority and power of Jesus Christ? He is Lord. Notice verse 19. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I can't tell you exactly what that means, but there are some hints, I think, in these verses that we've looked at. The fact that he is the image of the invisible God. That the attributes that are seen in Christ are the very attributes of the Father. It pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. But I also think it means it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of being Lord over both creation and redemption. It pleased the Father to make him, in him, all of this fullness to dwell. So that everything under heaven, seen or unseen, everything in the church is looking to Jesus Christ as its supreme authority. This is the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. Verse 20 says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
What we see in this verse is that Jesus Christ alone is the reconciler. He reconciles everything to his father. Through his sacrificial death and the shedding of his blood. Notice that even Paul includes here things on earth, things in heaven. You know that creation is even now yearning and awaiting the glorious liberty of the sons of God, right? Why? Because creation itself was subjected to futility. Creation fell. Now thorns grow. Now we we work and sweat. Things aren't as they were in the garden. And it is Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, his death, burial, and resurrection that reconciles everything to God. Why is that? Because he is the Lord of everything. There is no one with the ability to reconcile not just his new creation, his people, the church, but any aspect of creation itself. If there is to be reconciliation, it will come through Christ and he alone. But notice how specific Paul is here in verse 20. Speaking of the reconciling work of Christ, he says that these things have been made perfect through the blood of his cross. The blood of his cross. He continues this thought down into verse 21. And here is where he begins to make some peculiar application to the believers who comprise this church he's writing to. He talks about who they were formerly, who they are now. And really it's nothing more than his own commentary on the 13th verse of what it means to be translated or delivered from darkness and conveyed to the kingdom of the son of his love. Do you want Paul's own words as to what that would look like? What would it look like if I were to be or someone I know were to be translated from darkness to light? Well, verse 21 gives us that detail. This is what it will look like. These are the details. These are the glorious details of that conveyance from darkness to light in verse 21. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Paul says it this way in another place. In your mind, you were hostile towards God. You were at enmity with him. You were alienated and enemies. He's talking about those in their natural state as having Adam as their federal head. And Adam all die. And it results in this natural condition into which every person is born into this world being alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Notice Paul includes both the mind and the hand. He includes what you think and what you do. Enemies in your mind and by wicked works. So it's pervasive. But then you have to love this little three words of grace, this little three letter word of grace, right? Yet. Yet. Now he, who? The Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption. Now he has reconciled. He has stood between you and all of your sin. 
and between the glorious justice of his father as mediator. He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. What a most glorious definition of what it means to be taken from darkness to light. In darkness, we were alienated from God, enemies in mind and hand. We were ensnared in darkness. We were enslaved to darkness. That's that's the point of Paul in the book of Romans chapter 6. You're enslaved there. You can't break yourself free. But then just with a few words, he tells us and he talks to us about what it means to be taken out of this darkness and to be translated into this kingdom of the son of his love into the light. Notice the second part of verse 22 to present you holy, blameless. And above reproach in his sight, only the Lord of all creation, more importantly, only the Lord of redemption can affect this type of transformation. Only the Lord of redemption can take me being alienated and being alienated and enemies in my mind by wicked works in working that out in any number of ways to my own detriment and to the casting of the cloud over Christ's glory. Only the Lord of redemption can take me or you and bring us to the place to where we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. How so? To be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. To have all of your Sin being nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, every sin of yours and mine, past, present, and future, was atoned for. That's the power of the blood of Christ. That's the power of the blood of the Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption. He takes those who were not only sinners because of their relation to Adam, but sinners in their deeds, how that worked its way out. And he takes them and he washes them and makes them clean. And notice This presentation in verse 22 to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. This presentation, in my own estimation, is Christ taking those enslaved in darkness, cleansing them by the power of his blood, affected by their faith and trust in him. He's taking them to his father. And he's saying, here, I'm presenting them to you. 
I've reconciled them to you. I've atoned for their sin. Do you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in that? Who is receiving the praise and the glory? We are very much passive in that. Aside from the faith given, then the faith expressed in him, Christ takes us and presents us. Notice the descriptive words, holy. Back to verse 2, verse 2 of chapter 1, to the saints. Same word. He's presenting us as saints, the holy ones of God, blameless. No accusation sticking to us any longer. Let the accuser of men do his work. The mediator of men has accomplished his final work. No accusation will stick to those who are found in Christ, even so far as being above reproach in his sight. That's the greatness of our salvation that was given to us by the Lord of creation, more importantly, the Lord of redemption. You see how Paul is pointing everything to Jesus. You want to talk about creation? Okay, let's talk about Jesus. You want to talk about how everything was made out of nothing? Then let's talk about Jesus. You want to talk about the magnificence of the heavens declaring the glory of God? Then let's talk about Jesus. You want to talk about the intricacy of your human body being fearfully and wonderfully made? Then we have to talk about Jesus. You want to talk about the beauty of a sunset, the beauty of a sunrise, the beauty of the mountaintop? Then we have to talk about Jesus. But let's go to the other side of that. You want to talk about the glories of redemption? We have to talk about Jesus. You want to talk about how you are made right in the sight of God? Then we have to have this conversation about Jesus and the shedding of his blood. You want to talk about your hope of heaven? That is one of the things that Paul said early in this letter, that he was giving thanks to God and his Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, but for the hope which is laid up for them in heaven. You want to talk about heaven, then you have to talk about Jesus. You want to talk about the glory of the church, then you have to talk about Jesus, who is the head and the preeminent member in the church. You want to talk about how to, quote, do church. Then we have to talk about Jesus, right? What is going to give him the preeminence and the utmost glory? So let's just summarize all of this. You want to talk about anything of any value or eternal importance at all, whether in creation or in redemption. Somewhere in there, you better get around to talking about Jesus or you're in error. There is no other explanation for creation. There is no other explanation for real, true, biblical salvation. Jesus Christ is indeed all in all. And this is just the beginning of Paul peeling back the layers of this Colossian fog that has settled in on them. That was devaluing the person of Christ. This is just the beginning of him 
blowing all of that away. But notice there is, we can call it a warning. I don't think that's too far or too too harsh for what we read in verse 23. Notice he says, let me go back to verse 21 just so we see the force of the 23rd verse. You who were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away or drawn away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. True saints persevere. And isn't it interesting that this line of thought doesn't belong to Paul only? You remember Smyrna in the book of Revelation? The persecuted church? Jesus had a word for that church being one of the seven churches that he gave this vision to the Apostle John to write. And toward the end of that, he said to this persecuted church, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful all the way to the end. Now some have a problem with that, saying, My salvation certainly cannot be up to me to maintain. And we say a hearty amen to that. Jesus Christ, having begun the good work in us, according to Paul in Philippians 1.6, will complete it unto the day of salvation. But brethren, notice these verses, and there are several of them in the New Testament that call believers to press on all the way to the end, to keep going. There is no room to settle down halfway up the mountain and rest. You have to persevere. You have to keep going. Christ helping you all the way. Christ leading and guiding you all the way. Yes, the work is ultimately fully and finally his. But we are in that train of which he is leading many sons into glory. And there is work for us to do along the way. Continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast. Not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. Notice there's several or three ways here that Paul defends the gospel. He says this is the gospel that you've heard. This is the gospel that's being preached to every creature under heaven. Notice how inclusive Paul is, is getting here. Whether or not he's limiting this every creature under heaven to Mankind only, I'm not certain. There is no redemption given, obviously, to the animal kingdom, nor to the angelic host. But I think just the pervasiveness of the gospel, this is the gospel preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We sing from time to time a hymn, All Glory Be to Christ. It seems like that's the summary of what Paul would say to this Colossian church in verses 9 through 23. All glory be to Christ. He is the Lord of creation. 
He is the Lord of redemption. He was the active agent in creation, and he is the alone active agent in the new creation of his people. All glory be to him. I want to close by reading you something I read this week in my own devotion. This is a call to come to Christ. Listen to these words from John Flavel. He says, Woe and alas forevermore to that man who meets a just God without a mediator. I beseech you by the mercies of God in the light of all the love you have for your own soul. Do not neglect the opportunity of this day to come to Christ. Get an interest in Christ quickly. What will your state be when the when vast eternity opens to swallow you up? Happy is the man who can say in his dying moment, this is my comfort. I am forgiven. Remember, no sin can stand before a holy God. All will be put down. So let me just reiterate what he says. I beseech you by the mercies of God. Do not neglect this opportunity. To come to Christ. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. And he alone. Can and will save you. Let's pray. Father we thank you for the glories of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these words from Paul that teach us, remind us of the glory of your Son and our Savior. Father, give us grace. Help us not to countenance anything that would cast a shadow over the glory of Christ being the Lord of creation. How he in the beginning was with you. And how he in the beginning was the agent of everything that we see. What glory is due him for the things he has made. What glory is due him for our own creation. The creation of mankind having made them male and female. In your own image. Father we give you thanks for this Lord of creation that you have revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But Father, we're also thankful our hearts are filled with praise that you have shown us him in his full splendor as being also the Lord of his new creation. The head of his church in all things having preeminence. Father, we pray that the mercy and grace that is to be found in Christ would be found by all who are present here this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would show the beauty of Christ to those who have not yet seen it. The Savior of the world, the light of the world, the hope of the world, all being your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask for this mercy to be given, this grace to be known, because we know that you delight in it. 
that it pleases you. We pray, Lord, that you would add another voice to the choir of the redeemed so that we could collectively praise and give thanks to you, our Father in heaven. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption, Jesus Christ. Amen.